Question for us to consider this evening. How adept are you at dealing with transitions, change, and upheaval? How do you do going through those kinds of circumstances? Typically, we don't like change, right? Especially not significant change. We want things to stay the way they are. We like the stability and predictability of routines and patterns. As a case in point, just, just look around. And I'm sure you'll see a lot of friendly faces, the same people who sit next to you week after week, month after month, year after year, maybe decade after decade. We're all kind of sitting in the same places that we normally do. I can get the lay of the land here. I know who to look for as I go through all the sections, right? This is a case in point. Truly, we are creatures of habit. Yet transitions, change, and upheaval are an inevitable part of life and we all share these experiences. Perhaps you've experienced an unwanted and significant change in circumstances, maybe something that relates to your family, to work, to life in society. We all experienced this when we woke up on Wednesday morning, right, and learned the election results. Um, I guess, uh, Perhaps you anticipated this and saw this coming, but apparently, by and large, Michiganders are in favor of Proposal 3. Who knew? Perhaps you've been jarred by the death of a loved one, and you've experienced change and upheaval in that kind of tragic way. Before, you couldn't imagine what life would be like without this person. How can life go on without them? They were such a vital source of stability, companionship, and comfort, but now they're gone. Perhaps you've suffered the loss of a mentor. They passed away, moved away, or moved on for one reason or another, and you're finding it difficult to get along without their constant input and guidance. They were a sounding board for you to help you think through your decisions. And now, uh, for one reason or another, you're separated from them, and you treasure and you miss their input so much. This is how I felt when I first moved out of the house and moved out of state. I remember feeling absolutely terrified because now there's no buffer between you and reality. Your parents are gone, you're the one responsible, and there is no shock absorber. I remember thinking, I could absolutely ruin my life, and who's going to tell me to stop and don't do it? But then I, I moved in with the Dorans a few weeks after that, so that kept me on the rails. <laughs> the Lord provides. Uh, the summer that I moved here was the summer of 2010, and that was actually, if I remember it correctly, the summer that Dr. Rice passed away, and we had his funeral service here at the church. Uh, what a faithful servant and a mentor for so many whose fingerprints are um, all on the ministry here and, and in so many lives. Not long ago, we commemorated Dr. McCune and his life for his funeral, uh, another faithful servant of the Lord who showed us the way of faithfulness. Maybe you've had a mentor like that and they've since passed on or moved away. Kids, adults, and parents aren't the only ones who go through change, upheaval, um, and transitions, but you go through them just like the rest of us. The adjustment to kindergarten and full days at school, being away from mom all day, that's a difficult change, right? That's something to get used to although Mrs. Pfeiffer does so well at navigating those times and Mrs. Stock for our kids. That's a significant change. Sometimes your friends move away or they move on, and that's no fun. I remember I was in fifth grade, and my best friend who lived just a couple doors down moved across the ocean to the island of Guam, and that felt like the biggest change in the world to me. And when life is difficult for mom and dad, when they're going through difficulty, change, and upheaval, it's difficult for everyone in the home, for the parents and for the kids too. So the question stands for all of us. How adept are you at dealing with transitions, change, and upheaval? You see, the problem is, in times like these, we tend to question God. The disruption of these circumstances, the uncomfortability of it all, challenges our faith. We find ourselves asking, where is the Lord? in these circumstances? Where is the Lord in this change, in this difficult transition? 
if you think through some of the examples we just listed off. Where is the Lord, the God of 18th century America? Right, society is different. Again, that was the message loud and clear um, from the election results on Tuesday. We ask ourselves, where is the Lord, the God of my mother or the God of my father, a loved one who passed away? We learned the ways of the faith and how to live life from them, and now they're gone. Where is the Lord in it? We might ask ourselves, where is the Lord, the God of Dr. Rice? Where is the Lord, the God of Dr. McCune? And the same thing could be said from so many men of God that have gone before us. Where is the Lord, the God of Spurgeon, the God of Whitfield, the God of Calvin? Where is the Lord? Our text tonight has some timely and instructive wisdom for us. In our passage, we will follow a man as he makes a very challenging and difficult transition. So please turn in your Bible to 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings 2, if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab the Pew Bible, open up to 2 Kings 2, and follow along with the message. I guess it's a day in the Old Testament today. Jacob and I didn't plan that, but it just worked out that way, making a foray into the Old Testament here. We're going to read the text entirely, 2 Kings 2, and then we're going to work through some life lessons from the life of Elijah. And it came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know, be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, or his cloak, and folded it together and struck the waters, and they were divided here and there, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and 
cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send. They sent therefore 50 men and they searched three days, but did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Then the men of the city said to Elisha, behold now, The situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful, or it miscarries. He said, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness, death or miscarriage any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going from there, as, and as he was going by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. He went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. I'm sure you have many questions and curiosities about the detail of this scene, and Lord willing, we will get to them. But first, let's try to follow the plot development and the tension of the scene. We're introduced to the tension of this story in the first verse. The time had come for the Lord to take up Elijah by a whirlwind into heaven. And it's evident throughout the scene that Elisha, he delays this transition as long as possible. The nagging question of the scene that waits to be resolved is this, will Elisha succeed Elijah as his successor, as the true prophet of the Lord? Is Elisha going to take on the ministry of Elijah? That's the question that this entire chapter seeks to answer. And if you want to follow the plot development, the flow of the narrative, it reaches its climax in verse 11. So everything that precedes verse 11 builds to a climax in verse 11, when Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And from that point following, the action of the story slopes away to a fitting resolution. So that's the shape of the passage before us. The climax is when Elijah is taken up to heaven. So as I said just a moment ago, this is a difficult transition for Elisha. Unless we have a sense of the significance of Elijah's ministry, we're not gonna be able to see the story from Elisha's point of view. Why would Elisha suffer so much angst? on on the account of this event, the the removal of his master from over him. Why would this cause him anxiety or concern? So let's try to get the scope just quickly, briefly, of Elijah's ministry. So Elijah is arguably among the top three men in the Bible and in human history. And if he's not in your top three, he should probably at least be in your top five. So you probably recall the story on the Mount of Transfiguration in the Gospels when Elijah appears with Moses and our Lord Jesus Christ, and they take counsel together discussing the upcoming departure of the Lord in Jerusalem. Elijah's ministry, maybe this will help you get the scope of it if you can't quite recall to mind what his ministry was like. It was characterized by demonstrations of power, and authority and fire. (laughs) I'm just going to list off a a few instances in rapid fire. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah instigates a three-year drought in Israel uh, during the reign of the infamous wicked king Ahab that is instigated by the prophet Elijah. And then in 1 Kings 18, he has his famous showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He prepares his altar and his offering. They prepare their altar and their offering. And the God who answers by fire is the true and living God. Elijah stood sentinel facing down 450 prophets of Baal. And in that time, he was one of the very few who had remained faithful to the Lord during the 
reign of wicked King Ahab and Jezebel, many of God's people has apostatized, not Elijah. He remained faithful. Um, And then following that event, uh, Elijah actually flees because he's threatened by Jezebel. That is kind of an odd moment. He calls down fire from heaven. They slaughter 450 prophets. And then he's threatened by a woman, and he flees. So he flees through the wilderness to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God, likely the place in which Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord. And he actually stands before the Lord on Mount Horeb, and he has an apparition of the Lord just like Moses. And he hears that still, small voice after it all. And then the Lord sends him to anoint King Hazael of Damascus. He also anoints Jehu over Israel. So he is a man who, in a sense, set up kings and declared God's condemnation, tore down other kings. He pronounces God's judgment, conclusive judgment on King Ahab. He even calls down fire from heaven to consume Ahaziah's 50 soldiers, groups of 50 soldiers in 2 Kings chapter 1. So Elijah's ministry is characterized by demonstrations of authority, power, and fire. Not only was his public ministry significant, but he's also a personal mentor for Elisha. In 1 Kings 19, the Lord tells Elijah to go anoint Elisha as his successor and his apprentice. You can read that story in 1 Kings 19. So the Lord tells him where to find him. Elijah finds Elisha. He throws his cloak on him, symbolizing this apprenticeship. And from that point forward, Elisha becomes assistant to Elijah, and he follows him likely for several years. So throughout the rest of the reign of King Ahab and Ahab's interactions with Elijah, Elisha is assisting him. And then when Ahab is succeeded by his son Ahaziah, Elisha is assisting Elijah as well. So he had been a personal mentor to Elijah for some years. Um, And we we see his angst in the passage itself in our narrative, not only his history with his master Elijah, but we see that he emphatically refuses to leave Elijah's side. So on three occasions, Elijah says, to Elisha. I know I'm going to get those confused. I'm just waiting for it to come, right? Why couldn't they differentiate those names a little bit more? Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me to Bethel. And he swears an oath in the Lord as the Lord Yahweh lives, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he says that time and again. He refuses to leave Elijah's side. And then when the sons of the prophets in each of these locations tell him what's about to happen. They forecast what's about to happen. He tells them, hush, be quiet, because he's delaying this transition. He's delaying the the home going of Elijah, it would seem, as long as possible. And then when his master is finally taken up in a whirlwind, he rends his clothes. This is a sign of grief and mourning. And he cries out, my father, my father. So much of Elijah's ministry His faith, his service to the Lord, his knowledge of God was shaped by Elijah. And now Elijah, this stalwart and solitary prophet of the Lord, is about to be taken up, no longer to be seen on this earth. And so he's grieved over this. This is obviously a significant transition in the life and ministry of Elisha. So what can we learn? What life's lessons can we learn for ourselves dealing with upheaval, transition, and change? Here's the first lesson. The Lord always prepares his servants for what's coming next. That's the first lesson. I see pens moving. You know, I see people thinking here. The Lord always prepares his servants for what's coming next. And I think this lesson expands into three applications. I'm going to try and draw them out from Elisha's life and then just try to make some further comment and press down applications into our own lives. So the first application of this lesson is this. Acknowledge the Lord's preparation. The Lord always prepares his servants for what's coming next. So acknowledge the Lord's preparation. How did that play out in Elisha's life? Well, as has already been said, Elisha had been apprenticed to Elijah for some years 
through significant events in Elijah's ministry. Elisha had learned what service to the Lord, what life and ministry looks like from a faithful servant of the Lord, following him by his side for years. And this was all preparation. Uh, God didn't just throw Elisha into the deep end and expect him to figure it out. Elisha had lots of on-the-job training. And so he had learned ministry from his predecessor, and it was time for him to step into that role. And the Lord providentially had been preparing him for it so that he would be suited and prepared in advance. And you can see this pattern all throughout the servants of the Lord in Scripture. You could pick any example, but let's try to work through just a couple. Think of Joseph in his life. Before Joseph ascended to the second position of power in Egypt, what was he doing? What kinds of life's experiences had God providentially put in his life to prepare him for that pivotal juncture? You know, where did he learn his administrative skill? Well, evidently, he learned it from the prison, right? Because we learn that when he is thrown in prison unjustly, he actually rises to a position of authority and prominence so that he's running the affairs of the prison. Well, where did he learn it before that? Well, evidently from Potiphar's household, right? Because we learn that when he becomes a slave in Potiphar's household, he becomes the second in command and Potiphar isn't concerned for any of the affairs of his house except for his wife. And Joseph runs his house, his entire all of his affairs, and they prosper under Joseph's hand. And, of course, we know how, in fact, Joseph got to Egypt, and we know the purpose for which the Lord sent him there. Um, it seems like the time frame works out that when Joseph was sold into slavery, he was roughly 15 years old. And the time that he's exalted as the second in command in Egypt, Pharaoh's assistant, he's roughly 30 years old. So the Lord through his providence and good hand, had put Joseph through 15 years of very specific preparation for the one assignment that would make the difference. At the end of his life, uh, when all is said and done and he sees his brothers again and they're reunited, he tells them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He could see God's good hand of providence through all the circumstances, preparing him for this key assignment when he would become second in command in Egypt and all the puzzle pieces would fall into place. God always prepares his servants for what's coming next. You can think about other examples. What about David, King David? What was he doing before he was anointed by Samuel? Well, evidently, he was watching sheep in the wilderness, right? He was tending sheep and Seems like he, he got pretty good at the fiddle during that time, right? Or the flute or whatever musical instrument, the masculine, I think is one of the instruments of the Psalms. What would David, what would God use David to do in his life and ministry? He would use him to shepherd his people, Israel, and he would become the psalmist of scripture. God always prepares his servants for what's coming next. What about the instance in which David faced down the giant Goliath? What did he have to go on trusting that the Lord would do what he'd always done? He would deliver. You know this. The Lord had delivered him from a lion and a bear that he slew with his bare hands. And that was evidence that the Lord was preparing him for the next ministry assignment. We could work out the same pattern with Moses. What about Moses? He was instructed in the wisdom of Pharaoh, raised in Pharaoh's household according to the customs of the Egyptians. Well, that would come in handy later in life. And what was he doing when he was banished from the land of Egypt? He spent time in the wilderness as a shepherd. That would also come in handy later in life. We can see God's good hand of mighty providence in all of these circumstances. He always prepares his servants for what's coming next. And he's doing the same thing for you. He's doing the exact same thing for you in your life. He will never throw you into the deep end. He will never leave you unsupported, unaided. He has ministry assignments for you in your life. And if you look back 
you can see his good hand of providence, guiding, sustaining, preparing, positioning you for the exact thing he wants you to do next. The Lord always prepares his servants, so acknowledge the Lord's preparation. Here's the second application of this lesson. Accept the Lord's plan. Acknowledge his preparation and accept his plan. How did this play out in Elisha's life? So Elisha knew that Elijah was to be taken up in a whirlwind. Obviously, we have talked about this. He received several advanced warnings. Um, We're introduced to this reality in the very first verse of the chapter. When the sons of the prophets warn him, he tells them he was already made aware. He already knew. So in several ways, the Lord made known to Elisha what he was about to do as preparation. And at some point, Elisha just had to acknowledge and accept God's plan in order to move on. If the Lord is moving us on, then it does no good to just drag our feet or dig our heels in. If he's moving us on in one way or another, then we need to accept his plan and be prepared for service. And at one point or another, Elisha had to come to terms with this, that it was Elijah's time to be taken up and it was Elisha's time to take center stage in the prophetic ministry. And God would sustain him all the way through. So he was just going to have to come to terms with that and get on with the Lord's very good plan, trusting the Lord. What about you and me? Maybe you're on the cusp of a transition. You can see it coming It's significant change, it's going to happen, and you're having difficulty coping with that. Maybe you're in the thick of it right now and you're just waiting for the dust to settle, slightly confused. Or maybe you're on the other side of it, struggling to process what's happened, struggling to accept the new realities of your different circumstances. There comes a point when we need to accept the Lord's plan Acknowledge that it comes from the hand of the Lord, that the Lord always does what seems good to him and what's in our own best interest, and move forward. The Lord always prepares his servants. Here's the third application of this lesson, and it's this. Ask for the ancient paths. Acknowledge the Lord's preparation, accept the Lord's plan, and ask for the ancient paths. There's a key lesson in this text, and I think we need to take careful note of the geographic locations if we are going to see it. The trajectory of this journey is important. It's significant, and we ought to pick up on it. I'm going to try to do the Pastor Doran thing where you draw maps so that people can see what you're doing. This is uh, life past my pay grade, but hopefully... I can map this out for you. And my Bible actually has really helpful maps in the back. Maybe yours has some of those. This would be a very appropriate time to reference that. So let's think about the locations that Elijah and Elisha passed through. We didn't read this far back in the text, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, at the beginning of 2 Kings, it seems like they are on Mount Carmel, which is far northwest in Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. So I think that's the location of 2 Kings chapter 1. And then as Elijah and Elisha make their journey, where Elijah will eventually be taken up, they travel southeast towards the Dead Sea. So they come to Gilgal first, and from there they go to Bethel. So they're just north of the Dead Sea, kind of in the region of Jerusalem. And then from Bethel, they go to Jericho, which seems to be like straight east, And then from Jericho, they go to the bank of the Jordan. And then they cross over the Jordan. Just the two of them, they pass through. Then Elijah is taken up. And Elisha retraces his steps all the way back up to Mount Carmel. That's the trajectory of that journey. And these locations are significant. I think we need to ask two questions as we try to understand this part of the passage. Why are the locations significant? And why does Elisha retrace his steps after Elijah is taken up. Well, first, perhaps you recognize some of these names as the route of Israel's conquest of the promised land. You probably thought, it probably evoked the image in your mind as we read the text, 
Israel led by Joshua going through the Jordan and marching on to conquer Jericho. Indeed, at least in part, this is the route of Joshua's conquest. In part, this is the path that Joshua took, leading God's people into the promised land to inherit God's promises. There is also an encampment named Gilgal in the conquest narrative in Joshua chapter 4. Here's the point. These locations are not incidental. I think that God is essentially teaching Elisha a geography lesson. The Lord is showing him that just as he is the God of Elijah, he's also the God of Israel, the God of Joshua, the God of Moses, the God of the patriarchs, and most importantly, he is the God of Elisha. That though his mentor, his master, Elijah, is taken, the Lord remains. The Lord is with him. These are the ancient paths. He reminds him by way of these locations and events of the history of God's people and the incredible things that God has done for his people, his redemption, his promises, his protection, his guidance. As Elisha traveled this route, he should have seen God's faithfulness in every location. So in times of change, transition, and upheaval, remember, God is the God who is working out all things according to the counsel of his will, as he always has. So if you are shocked or jarred in your life because of some instance of grief, transition, upheaval, and change, root yourself in scripture that your God is the God who has always cared for his people. He's the God who led them through the wilderness, who led them through the Red Sea, who led them across the Jordan and into the promised land, who conquered Jericho, who gave them their very good land. He's the God of the patriarchs. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's doing what he has always intended to do. He never changes. His plans and his purpose never change. So look for the ancient paths. Sometimes to move forward, we've got to look back and remind ourselves of what the Lord God has always done for his people and what he promises to do for us. So that's why these locations are significant. Let's try to answer the second question. Why does Elisha retrace his steps? This is a bit more conjecture. I'm trying to follow the subtleties of the narrative, what the author intends for us to see? I think this is the answer. I think Elisha retraces his steps because the old path is familiar. It's the path that he walked with Elijah. It leads back to Elijah's home on Mount Carmel and the place where God manifested his power and his presence in fire. In this transition, Elisha sticks to what he knows. He's looking for solidarity and he's strengthening his connection with his predecessor. And this is exactly what we need to do in times of transition, change, upheaval, trial, and difficulty in our lives. We need to ask for the old paths and stick to the old ways. In in many ways, uh, even when we experience significant change, nothing changes. Uh, I get that line from Jeremiah 6.16, which says this, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. When we experience significant change and upheaval, we actually just need to do the same thing we've been doing all along, the same thing that we're always gonna do. We need to go back to those regular habits of grace, the patterns and routines that God has ingrained in our lives, which infuse our lives with stability and strength and predictability and certainty. In times of change, we're gonna do the same thing we've always done. We're gonna get up in the morning, we're gonna read our Bibles, we're gonna read God's word. We're gonna come to God in prayer with all of our requests and we're gonna ask and seek and knock. We're gonna worship together every week. We're gonna sing praises to our great God. We're gonna sit under his word. We're gonna respond in faith and obedience and we're gonna follow him 
We're going to give. Give of ourselves and our resources to support his purposes and his plans in this world. We're going to support each other. We're going to weep with those who weep. We're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. These are the patterns of God's people. These routines give cadence and stability to our lives. And in times of transition and upheaval, this is exactly what we need to do. In a very real sense, even though some of the details change, actually nothing changes. We're going to do the same thing that we've always done. So ask for the ancient paths. That's the first lesson. God always prepares his people. He always prepares his servants for what's coming next. And the, the following two lessons are shorter, so don't worry. All right, nobody's worried in here. We're all having a nice time together. Here's the second lesson. The Lord empowers his servants for ministry. So the Lord always prepares his servants for what's coming next, and the Lord empowers his servants for ministry. I know you want to get to what those she-bears mean, so just hang in there. We're going to talk about the she-bears in a little bit. The Lord empowers his servants. How did this play out in Elisha's life? Right. So as it's already been said, the question driving this passage is, will Elisha succeed Elijah as true prophet of the Lord? Is he going to take on Elijah's ministry? That's the nagging question. So that is what's intended by Elisha when he asks for a double portion of his spirit. What that language means is he is asking to be like the firstborn of the family the, the receptor of the inheritance, the double portion. You can see that language and the explanation of the rights of the firstborn in Deuteronomy 21. He's essentially asking, Elijah, can I be your heir, filling your shoes? Can I take on the role of the ministry after you are gone? That's his request. And I think Elijah's response is essentially, well, these are big shoes to fill. But he promises him, if you see me as I go up in a whirlwind, it will be done for you as you have requested. Um, there's just a, a few quick explanatory notes about the details of the passage. So first notice, the whirlwind is actually the means of Elijah's ascension. I think sometimes when we visualize this passage, we see like a chariot of fire coming down like Santa Claus, and Elijah climbs into the chariot, and away he goes. But Actually, the way the story reads is the chariot of fire and the horses of fire separate the two as they're walking, and then Elijah goes up in a whirlwind. And interestingly, this is actually something that kind of seems paradigmatic of Elijah's ministry, that it wasn't, I don't know if it happened every day, but it had happened before that the spirit had taken him up and transported him elsewhere which is exactly what happens in this text. The spirit takes him up in a whirlwind and he's translated to heaven. We see that earlier whenever it's the time of the drought and one of Ahab's servants finds Elijah in the wilderness and Elijah says, go get King Ahab and tell him I'm going to appear before him today. And the servant says, well, I can't do that because you know who's to say that the spirit's not just gonna transport you somewhere else when I leave? So evidently there's something that happened to Elijah before Interestingly as well, whenever the 50 um, witnesses of the event, the sons of the prophets that are opposite them on the banks of the Jordan, they say, well, maybe the spirit took him up and transported him to some mountain or some valley, so let us go look for him. So evidently, this was a hallmark of Elijah's ministry. He's taken up in a whirlwind. Now, why the image of a fiery chariot and fiery horses? What does that have to do with the story? That seems kind of random and bizarre. Just to cut to the chase quickly on that one. These symbols, chariot and warhorse, were symbols of military might. And that was exactly the kind of ministry that Elijah had. We already went through several instances of his ministry, but essentially he set up kings and he tore down kings. He called down fire from heaven to consume his enemies. He was a defender of Israel and a champion of the Lord. So I think that this fiery chariot, these fiery horses actually symbolize who Elijah was, the character of his ministry. And then when he goes up, Elisha says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. And I think he's actually using that as a title, a description 
of who Elijah was in his ministry. Interestingly as well, that is the same title that's applied to Elisha in 2 Corinthians 13 when he's about to pass off the scene. Someone refers to him in the same way, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. So after Elijah is taken up, Elisha picks up his cloak or his mantle. And this is a detail that is strongly emphasized in the passage. It was the instrument for Elisha's apprenticeship. Uh, Elijah had cast his cloak on Elisha when Elisha was chosen to be his assistant. He takes up the mantle that had fallen and he stands on the bank of the Jordan and exclaimed, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And you can hear his angst as he experiences this significant change. He strikes the Jordan and the Jordan splits wide open and he passes through on dry ground. He trods the same path as Joshua and the people of Israel and his predecessor, Elijah. I suppose the Lord gave him the answer to his question. And when he reaches the other side, the 50 prophets who serve as witnesses say, behold, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. He has become Elijah's true successor, the prophet of Israel. And God would empower and enable him to do everything that God intended him to do in his time of service. So what about you and what about me? God empowers his servants for ministry. Just as God empowered Elisha for service, he will likewise empower you, no matter the challenges of your circumstances. I am not suggesting that you go strike the Rouge River with your coat. I'm not saying that God will perform the miraculous and the supernatural, but I am saying that he has a plan and purpose for you, that every member of the body of Christ is gifted for service, young and old, great and small, he has exactly something for you and he will empower you to do it. He will enable you. He will uphold you. He will sustain you. Just as he's the God of Elijah, the God of Joshua and Israel, he's your God. You will find that even though your circumstances have changed, your God hasn't changed. Even though the details are different, the plan remains the same. Now the third and final lesson. The Lord confirms his word to and through his servants for blessing and for cursing. That's the third and final lesson. The Lord confirms his word to and through his servants for blessing and for cursing. Now we're getting to the she-bears because I knew that you wanted to know. So let me try to explain the sequence of events that occur after Elijah crosses back, excuse me, Elisha crosses back over the Jordan alone. The three scenes that follow Elijah's departure confirm Elisha's succession by establishing Elisha's word. I think if we get that point, then these three seemingly bizarre and random scenes will become very clear. What are these scenes all about? The the waters of the city of Jericho being purified and the she-bears gobbling up the 42 young lads. What's this all about? It's the Lord establishing his servant Elisha by confirming Elisha's word for blessing and for cursing. The Lord is establishing his servant. His word comes in Israel from his servant Elisha as it had from Elijah. So what about the first scene, the, the prophets, these 50 prophets? I think we should kind of think of these folks as Bible college students. You know, I think they learned from the ministry of Elijah. I think Elijah was a teacher, perhaps like a rabbi to them. They learned the word of the Lord. They themselves, to some degree, were messengers of the Lord. So they are official witnesses that Elisha is now Elijah's successor. And they come to Elisha and they ask him, well, should we say, we, we got 50 strong men here. Should we send them to go look for Elijah? Maybe the spirit of the Lord cast him onto some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha tells them, don't send. But they persist and they press him. So finally he says, send. So they go look for three days and they come back empty handed. And he says, I told you so. 
And the point of that is, Elisha's word is the word of the Lord now. He has become his predecessor's successor. And then in the next scene, the men of Jericho bring a problem to Elisha. The waters of Jericho are producing miscarriage and death. The word there could be translated, the land is unfruitful or it's barren. Or it can be taken as the inhabitants of the land experience miscarriage and death. And I think, actually, that's probably the right way to take it. And we need to understand just a little bit of background on this. When Joshua conquered and laid ruin to the city of Jericho, he pronounced a curse on Jericho. You can read about that in Joshua 6.26. But he said, Cursed be the man who rebuilds the foundations and sets up the gates at the cost of his firstborn, and at the cost of his youngest. And then in the narrative of Kings, we read in 1 Kings 16 that Hiel, a man actually rebuilt the fortress of Jericho at the cost of the life of his firstborn and his youngest. And maybe this makes some sense of it, that the waters of Jericho, uh, because Jericho had been cursed, were poisoned and produced miscarriage and death. But at the word of Elisha, Elisha blesses them And the waters become purified, and verse 22 emphasizes this is by the prophet's word, according to the word of Elisha. He is now the prophet of the Lord speaking the authoritative word. And then the third and final scene, the scene with the she-bears. Essentially, Elisha pronounces a curse in the name of the Lord, and this curse is fulfilled as his other prophetic words. So, We should view these bears, as one commentator said, as covenant bears. It was actually forewarned in the Torah, in the covenant, that if God's people in God's place, Palestine, forsook the Lord and forsook his ways, if they were faithless, Leviticus 26.22 warns in this way, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. This is a covenant curse. Uh, Notice this happens in the city of Bethel. We learned earlier that King Jeroboam, um, the first king of the divided kingdoms, the king of Israel, that he set up pagan worship and one of his golden calves in Bethel. So perhaps these young lads, and we shouldn't think of these kids, by the way, as like five-year-old kindergartners who are just irresponsible, unaccountable for their actions. They're probably more like 10 to 12-year-olds. They're accountable for their actions. They were aware that they were cursing a prophet of the Lord or scorning a prophet of the Lord. The passage tells us that um, there's like a small mob of them that actually come out after Elijah. They leave the city and they harass him. So it says 42 of their number died, which suggests that there were actually more than 42 And they're not just scorning a man, they're scorning the prophet of the Lord. They're scorning the word of the Lord. So perhaps, likely, they come from families that were engrossed in pagan worship. And they mock the Lord's prophet, and in doing so, they mock the Lord himself and his word. So Elijah utters a curse that simply reflects the covenant curse of Leviticus 26. And these young lads are gobbled up by she-bears. And essentially, all in all, the point is the Lord confirmed his word to and through his servant Elisha. He had already told Elijah, anoint Elisha as your successor. The Lord confirmed and fulfilled that word. And then when he takes up his role as the prophet of the Lord and speaks the word of the Lord, it comes to pass. Because indeed, it is the word of the Lord. It's God's message Again, the point of this, the lesson for us is the Lord confirms his word to and through his servants for blessing and for cursing. All in all, the Lord established Elisha as Elijah's successor by confirming his word, and the Lord will likewise uphold you as his servant if indeed you belong to him. So again, I'm not saying that you will perform the miraculous or that you're going to speak new revelation as God used Elisha to do. However, the Lord will confirm his word to you 
just like the Lord confirmed his word to establish Elisha as the successor. The Lord will confirm his every word to you. Not one of his words will fall to the ground. And he has promised you incredible realities in Christ. He has made remarkable, marvelous, sustaining, gracious, completely good promises to you in Christ in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen, and he will confirm every single promise. Likewise, he will confirm his word not only to you, but through you. If you utter the word of the Lord as conveyed in scripture, if you speak the truth in love, as Ephesians chapter four tells us to do in our relationships to one another, in our relationships to the lost, then not one of your words will fall to the ground. If you tell the unbelieving that if they turn from sin and trust in Christ, they will be redeemed, eternally saved and forgiven. If in fact they do that, your word will come to pass because it is in scripture, the revealed word of the Lord. If you warn the unbelieving that if they don't turn, they will be eternally damned and condemned for their rebellion and sin, it will come to pass because it is the word of the Lord and will be confirmed through your ministry. If you tell your brothers and sisters in Christ that if they trust the Lord and they honor him, that he will care for them, that he will supply every need, he'll give exactly what's needed, when it's needed, he will confirm his word because it comes to us authoritatively in scripture. Not one of these words will fall to the ground. The word of the Lord proves true and all of his work is done in faithfulness. So when you find yourself asking, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Know that he's right here with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When you pass through the waters, he will be with you. When you pass through the flood, it will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you will not be consumed because the Lord never leaves his servants. That's the lesson that Elisha learned on the banks of the Jordan, stuck with him the rest of his life in ministry. The Lord never leaves his servants.